Good morning, Central. Hello, hello, hello. It's so good to be with you on a beautiful, cold morning, and it's delightful. It's just delightful to be together. I cannot believe the beautiful way the welcome was done this morning, the thoughtfulness of it, and it's exactly what I was going to say, so that eliminates three minutes of the sermon. And then I could not believe the communion reflection it was so thoughtful and beautiful. And that eliminates the other three minutes of part of my sermon. Six minutes total already, so you really get out early today. It is good to be with you. Well, guys, tomorrow is Valentine's, right? I, I call Valentine's, the, for men, it's the wait till the last minute and go to Target day. That, that, that's kind of what it is, you know, you just... It's just one of those days. I, I had a, uh, I have a cousin. He's up in his early, late 80s now, and he was married for years, and he was a very successful businessman. He was the family comedian, and he was tighter than the bark on a tree. He was so frugal that he took his wife to Walmart, and she would be shopping, and she would find him in the card section, and he would pick out the card, tell her he loved her, have her read the card, and put it back in the rack. Don't do that, guys. It will not serve you well at all. So let's begin with prayer. Oh, Lord, our prayer is simple this day but profound. Help us follow Jesus together. In the name of our Lord, we pray, who teaches us how to follow together. Amen. I trust your faith in Christ as well. And you're following Jesus together. That you're giving yourself to life-giving spiritual habits of stillness, of prayer, of healthy relationships, of time in God's word, of paying attention to what's going on in your own soul. As was said earlier, there are so many things competing for our allegiance to Christ every day of our lives. When we gather to worship, we are reminded we are not the center of the universe. God is. And that worship calls us back to Christ. And I don't know about you, but it keeps the idolatry of self in check. That's what worship does. Even on the Sundays that your mind's someplace else, even on the Sundays you're not really singing, even on the Sundays that you're looking on your phone, even you're better off here than not. And if you're online, God bless you for joining us online. Last time I was with you, I shared how to treat your minister. So today, as you anticipate a new preacher in the future, it is helpful to consider your expectations. 
It varies by generations, but here's what we shared last time I was here. It's not showing up on the screen, so I was a little lost. I shared last time to pray for them and encourage them to be people of the word. I shared last time I was with you to give them space to be human and with their family. I shared last time I was with you, don't expect their spouses to be who they are. And importantly, talk to them, not about them. Jesus says so. And fifthly, I shared the respect of their need for Sabbath. Today, as you anticipate a new preacher, I would like to talk to you about your expectations of what you should expect from a preacher. It's not how to treat a preacher. It's what you should expect from a preacher. Now, it varies by generations, but it's cumulative. Once you look at these slides, 50 years ago, it was study the Bible, pray for the members, be friendly, preach, visit the sick, share the gospel, marry and bury. I always say marry, bury, carry. You carry people through life, you marry them and you bury them. I mean, that's 50 years ago. Third, plus, then we added this 30 years ago. We need a visionary leader. We need an aggressive entrepreneur who could begin new ministries. We want him to promote everything at church all the time and be present with everything. That's a little added there. We want him to manage staff and volunteers. We want him to be active in the community organizations and activities. And now we've added another plus to that. And here's this list. Preach creative and fascinating internet sermons. Use technology. Be thoroughly missional and reach younger the younger generation. Be a master and use social media. Model a radical Christian lifestyle. Be a master counselor, able to save a troubled marriage in a single conversation. And be conversant on all current ethical and cultural and social issues. And I would add, take the stand I want you to take on that. Well, when you total them all together, there's at least 17 total expectations. Who wants that job? Anybody? You want it? I would dare say it's probably double that number. If we were just to say, what do you expect from a preacher? And you got to turn them in and all of a sudden you'd use your phone and they're flashing on the screen. Would it be overwhelming? You say, well, welcome to my job. I do that at work every day of my life. You know, I've got so many expectations at work. I understand. One of my mentors was Dr. Charles Seibert. He passed away several years ago. He often said this, expectations are merely premeditated resentments. Think about that. Particularly unstated expectations. And every church and every minister has them. A minister has them for a church that's unstated, and a church has them for a minister that's unstated. Unstated expectations. All you know, all you got to think about is this. Think about the first year you were married. I know some of you were the perfect spouse. Okay, I'm a liar, and the truth is not in me. But the reality is this. The reality is 
I assumed some things when I got married, and about three months in, I'm thinking, I don't know why she doesn't do that. So I'd say, honey, what about this? She says, I cannot read your mind. I had no clue you expected that. And it went the other way, too. They went unstated, and they became what happens when you have unstated relationships or expectations. As a minister, a relationship with the church is one of constant expectations from others, most of which are assumed. Unrealistic expectations too often become a courtroom with the minister and the church both on trial with each other. It is a trial of assumptions that become resentments, that become judgments, which result in accusations and defense, and sometimes an adversarial relationship. Open your Bibles, if you would, to a case of unrealistic expectations. John chapter 5. Open your phone, your iPad, wherever you have your Bible, quote it to yourselves because you've memorized it. Long before Jesus went on trial with Pilate, he was on trial with those who were offended by his teaching, by his ministry to those people, and violations of Jewish customs. In other words, he did not act according to their what? expectations and he knew all about their expectations he was one of them he knew the law he knew what the law was for he knew about sabbath he knew about circumcision he knew about food laws he knew about what to do and not do on the sabbath and their overt interpretation of that See, it wasn't that Jesus was anti-law. He came to fulfill the law. It wasn't that Jesus didn't care about law. He did. It was their interpretation and application of the law. It's the fences they built around it to protect the law. Jesus was not anti-law. Jesus was not some, but neither was he this legalist either, but he loved the law like the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. It's their interpretation and application of it. Jesus knew all about their expectations. So John 5 opens with a story of mercy, of the healing of a paraplegic. Paralytic is not strong enough for us. Paraplegic is. Listen to the word of the Lord. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Bethesda, excuse me, which has five porticos, or columns. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years paraplegic for 38 years at the bottom of the social totem pole. Pitiful existence, marginalized, 
no way to help himself. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take up your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that was the day of the Sabbath. Isn't that a beautiful story? A marginalized, paraplegic for 38 years of his life. Now, the next slide I want you to see. That's the pools. That's the five pools. Archaeologists discovered this up in, in 1956 outside the walls of Jerusalem. Near St. Anne's Church in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem now. Now, it's hard to imagine, but you go down the steps into these various pools. Just think, if you could just take, take a tour down through there and begin to read this story and begin to visualize. How, how did you get there in the first place? Could someone carry him? Did he just scoot along with... His arms? How did he get there? Who ignored him? Who walked by him every day? Who didn't help him? The thing about the troubling of the, the waters and the angel in some ancient text, it's bracketed off that it wasn't included in some ancient text. It's a way of trying to make sense out of what happened there. It was um, a, a place for ceremonial washings and rituals. A mikvah is the word. A lot of tradition and myth that went with it. I don't know how to unpack all that. What I know is there's a paraplegic. Jesus saw him. Jesus healed him. He took up his bed and walked. And you think, yes. And the Jews said, no. They didn't even deal with the person, with the man. All they saw was two violations. He's healed on the Sabbath. You can't do that kind. Of, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. One of those rules put in, a fence to protect violation of the Sabbath. And the second is, the man begins to say, "This I don't know who this was. I don't know where he went. This man healed me. Whoa. Well, who is this? I don't know. Violation of the Sabbath. And then when they find out and connect who it is, this, see, Jesus finds him later in the temple. Whoa, don't let that get past you. What's a temple for? Worship. Can you imagine this man walking in? This is Jerusalem. There's, there's people that knew him by the pool. There's Jews that go to the synagogue. They go into the temple. Can you imagine they found him in the temple worshiping God because he's been fully healed and all they can see is the religious rule that their interpretation of the Sabbath violated. 
Imagine what he's like. Jesus finds him in the temple and he says something very troubling. You've been made well. Now don't sin so your situation will not get any worse. Oh, now we've got a theological issue. Is there a correlation between his him being paraplegic for 38 years in sin? Don't know. Later on in John 9, Jesus says it wasn't with the blind man. It wasn't because he sinned that this happened to him. That's not the issue. So, but there is places in scripture that seem to indicate that sin has some consequence in a person's life. Not always Con context. It's a tough thing to navigate through. I can't tell you how to reconcile all of that, except it's there. But they're so ticked off, those Jews, not all of them, these particular Jews, because what Jesus did. So what Jesus does is he's put on trial. And this legal trial language is all the way through the Gospel of John. Jesus is constantly dealing with this legal mindset, this false interpretation of Sabbath of circumcision, of food laws, all the boundary markers for the Jewish people. He's constantly dealing with those struggles, those, those realities. And so Jesus enters a courtroom in a sense. Literally, no, but in their minds, yes. He's in Jerusalem. He's violated Sabbath. He's put on trial in a sense. The ironic thing is the context and the crime, the context is the, the word Bethesda is house of, is it on the screen? What does it say? Mercy. Isn't that ironic? Here's a man that's been healed by, the, by Jesus in the house of mercy, the pools of mercy, and the people are so upset because of the violations, they can't even be what? Merciful. See, that's what happens when our viewpoint of religion is so legal and our interpretation overrides concern and compassion for people. That doesn't mean the law doesn't matter. It's how we use the law. Paul's going to address that in many of his letters, particularly Romans, how you use the law. But the, but, but the reality is, the reality is it's house of mercy. They're in Jerusalem on Sabbath. That's the context. And the crime, the crime, you have violated Sabbath. This man has violated Sabbath. And you healed on the Sabbath, another violation. And another violation is, and Jesus says, wait just a minute here. So now you're down to verse 19. Or verse 17. My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. If you're looking at the text. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, and therefore making himself equal to God. From verse 19 through 47 then becomes Jesus's way of calling witnesses to defend his position, and it flips by the end that the person really on trial, the people really on trial, it's not Jesus that's on trial. It's the Jews that are on trial.
So he goes through several ways of explaining this. If you're looking at the text, verse 19 through 47, he enters this courtroom. He appeals to his authority as the son of God. He does nothing on his own. Whatever the father does, the son does because of his love. If you think this is something, consider the father raising the dead and giving life. So the son gives life to whom he wishes. He gave life to that man. It's like, you don't understand. You don't get it. To honor the son means honor the father. It's a matter of hearing and believing for eternal life. If the question for the man was, do you want to get well? The question for the Jews is, do you want to be saved? You don't have the belief for it. Then he calls another witness, John the Baptist, whom the whom, whom they sent messengers to, to engage him. And they rejoiced in the truth that John the Baptist spoke and the light that he showed. But Jesus was a testimony even greater than that, Jesus points out. In other words, Jesus was like standing up in a courtroom giving his defense. He calls on his own authority from God, that he's from God, that he's the son of God. He calls on John the Baptist as a witness. This is happening now, in essence, because he is sent from the Father. And you've never seen God in any form or heard his voice because you don't have the word abiding in you because you don't even believe in me. Whew. Now who's on trial? They thought Jesus was, but it was them because of unbelief. And the final witness is scripture itself given by Moses that they put all their interpretation, they put all their eggs in the basket of Moses and get the giver of the law. And he finally says, Moses testifies to me, and you don't see it. You don't get it. And now, who's been tried and found wanting? Those with the wrong expectations who do not even understand their own scriptures and how it connects to Jesus himself. But I like the message translation. It is a translation, a paraphrase. I love the message at times. I wouldn't lean on it all the time for critical study. Eugene Peterson's done a good job. But this is where it comes home to us and a few applications about what you should expect from a preacher. So let's look at these. Let's listen to this word. You have your heads in your Bibles, church, constantly because you think you'll find eternal life in there but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. I'm not interested in glory or crowd approval at all. And do you know why? Because I know you and I know your crowds. I know that you love, especially, I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. I came with the authority of my father, and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self important, you would welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all your time jockeying for position with each other, ranking your rivals? and ignoring God. Now you can read it in the NIV, the RSV, the ASV, the King James, and you're going, oh, yeah, that's right. Let me, let me analyze and think about it. What Peterson does is kind of bring it home for me. 
It is possible to study scripture all your life and miss the point of scripture. It is possible to know the Bible in and out, even some Greek words and Hebrew words, and miss the point of what it's all about. I remember that morning after my father died and we returned to San Diego to clean out his place, his double-wide mobile home. I'm sweeping the porch on a beautiful San Diego morning in late February, many years ago. And the neighbor came out and said, Good morning. How are you? Are, are you Grady's son? My dad was Grady. Yes, ma'am, I am. I'm so sorry about your father. You know, he was a good man. He could repair anything in this mobile home. He was a great cook. He, he was a good carpenter. He was so talented. He was a smart guy. And everybody loved him in this place. I said, oh, that's so wonderful. And she says, until he started talking about religion and people just walked, they didn't want anything to do with it. Just, my dad knew the Bible. My dad knew the Bible. He could quote it. He could circle things in my church bulletins of what went wrong and put a passage to it. My dad knew the word. of. He was raised deep roots argued with me on many times as we began a healing relationship through the years. I shut the door. Karen was in the kitchen packing dishes. I slid down the wall and wept. Karen comes in and says, honey, what's wrong? She sits down on the floor beside me. And said, and I said, honey, how could he have known so much scripture? And miss it? Not that he wasn't good, not that he didn't do good, but when it came to conversing about his own neighbors, dismissed him, didn't want to even talk to him. He didn't even... How? I don't want to be that, sweetheart. She said, oh, you're not. And he had returned to the Lord, and he had returned to the church, and he was going to church. And his own elders said, if your dad disagrees with one thing, he quits coming for a couple of weeks, writes us letters, and then comes back. In and out, I said, I know. By the grace of God, he too, at some point in his life, went to the house of mercy. And I'm compelled to give him mercy and did at his funeral. But it is a word of warning to me that I could miss the point and really know a lot about the Bible. A couple of things you should expect from your next preacher. He is not called to preach the Bible 
wait, 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 wait. I didn't say teach the Bible. He is not called. There's nowhere in Scripture that Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, any New Testament person says preach the Bible. He's called to preach the gospel. And what Scripture does is give insight to how that's done and with whom and the folk, the spirit and the attitude of it and the teaching and the definition of the gospel. But he's not here just to preach good Bible lessons for your head. He is here to preach a gospel for your life. He's here to preach the gospel. So tell him, expect him, call him to account, preach that gospel and apply it to me whether I like it or not. Is that fair? Is that needed? Secondly is preach from the integrity of his own heart and struggle, not down to you, but with you as a person trying to follow Jesus together just like you. Third, give, call him into the things that matter about leading you into this community to not only just do good deeds and humanitarian efforts and be connected in a community where people like your preacher, but that he call, challenge him to call you to actually learn how to share the gospel with your gifts in your own way. There is an author named Scott McKnight, and Scott McKnight talks about a lot of what's done in the name of missions and humanitarianism is not connected to the gospel. Because it's about good deeds and serving, we hope we're doing it in, in good actions, but it's not necessarily, there's, there's no bridge to the point that we learn to share the hope that was within in us. Does that make sense? that we can do a lot of good for humanity in Little Rock, Texas, Little Rock, sorry, apologize, repent, great, repent, Arkansas. We can do a lot of good in Little Rock, Arkansas in the name of Jesus. But at some point, there's got to be some spiritual conversation and bridges. And we have to learn to be equipped to do that. Call him into helping us do that. And if he's not doing it, call him to account. And third is, He doesn't call him into account with his work ethic. He doesn't get a free ride. He doesn't get a free ride in the name of, well, I'm just going to study today. He needs to study. But there is no reason a minister should ever have a lazy reputation. You businessmen that get up and go to work, you're held account to account. And as a man who works with a lot of churches, I know that many churches have no clue what ministers do day in and day out. I know that. And the ministry can be a place where you can hide and be publicly seen, but privately in a mess. And not working. And I don't, I don't mean punching a clock, but, but it's evident when somebody 
loves God and loves others. It's evident when he's prepared. It's evident when there is engagement and proactive ministry in his life. It's obvious. It's clear. So those are the few things that you should expect from a minister. I could give you some more, but then I'm just adding to the 17 that are already up there. Those are core to me. To God, I believe. The gospel, a heart, equipping the saints, connecting, helping people know how to share. It happened to me Friday night, and it's all yours today. I check in Friday night at the Hampton and McCain Mall. Nice lady, new hotel, asked where I could go eat. I didn't choose the best rib place, sorry. Uh, I won't tell you who I, I don't want to trash them. Um, and uh, so I, I come downstairs to go eat, and they have a new person showed up, and she, big smile, sweet person. Get off the elevator. She's smiling. She said, good evening. Welcome to Hampton. We're glad you're here. And I start dialoguing with her. <laughs> and she says, I have a word from the, of the Lord from the Lord for you. Now, that doesn't happen with us white folks too often. She was African-American, and it happens to me. And I always receive it. So the glasses between us at the counter at the Hampton, nobody is in the foyer checking in. Do, 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 do. She says, I could tell getting off of the elevator that you were a man of God. She know, is it on my profile? Has Peyton been telling her something with research or something? I don't know. Is it? No. I said, really? You know that? She says, I, just tell the way you carry yourself. Your eyes are kind and your smile is big and you engage people and you have this. You're a man of God, aren't you? I said, I try to be God's man. Yes. She said, here's my word for you. I don't know why you're here this weekend. I don't know what you, but, but you can let God have it because God's got this and you need to let it go and quit worrying about who you're going to work with and where you're going to be and what you need to say. God's going to use you, my friend. Come to find out, she hasn't been here long. Guess where she's from? Irving, Texas, where I'm from. Guess where she used to live? Eight blocks from where I lived now. Guess where she used to go to church? She went to a church at, called St. John's in Grand Prairie, Texas. I know that church, and it's a lively African-American church, and it's exciting to go there. And she says, I just, I just feel compelled. I just got to share this with you. And we ended up, she said, I've got a gift for you. She gave me a gift. It was a children's book she had written. And somebody, a friend of hers, had done the artwork. Lily's magic, I forgot the last word now, magic box. It's a cute little children's book. She wrote them, gave me two copies for my grandchildren. The story is this. It's a little girl who doesn't believe in herself and has had a hard time. And she finds this box. She opens it up, and there's a talking mirror in it. And when she looks in the mirror, the mirror, talk, the mirror talks to her and says, 
you're valuable, you're important, you can make it, you got to believe in yourself. And she's so excited, she begins to share that with all her friends that they need to believe in themselves. That's the little simple children's book. She wrote this. She said, I want to share it with you. I know you have grandchildren. I said, you don't know that I have grandchildren. Yeah, I do. Now, she did think I was 56 rather than 66. I wanted to hug and kiss her right there, you know. She gave me that. Now, why do I share that with you to go, I don't know how to, it happens though. You ever had stuff like that happen? She felt comfortable for some reason just to speak a word into my soul. She had the courage to do it. You want a preacher who helps lead you in those kind of conversations, who helps use the gifts and the personalities you have. At some point, it's not enough just to do humanitarian activities in the name of Jesus. We got to learn to share our own faith and you want a preacher to help you do that as he's doing it. Can I get an amen on that? May the Lord bless you. I love this church. I brag on you all the time. Believe you have a viable future. Don't give up on yourself and keep your feet rooted in the gospel of Christ. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Do you need to recommit to what really matters in your life? We'll pray for you. I know there's people here pray for you, love you. Usually I talk when I come in here and talk around and all that kind of stuff. I just kind of came in and just wanted to listen to you this morning. There's a lot of energy in this room. People are enjoying when there's smiles, there's laughter, there's talk. It, it, it's not dull, even though it's a big cavernous space. Don't be discouraged. God's got something going on for you. Let's stand and sing.